Hello Creative Health Gang, welcome back for your next inspiring audio story about creativity and why it matters in living our best lives. I'm your host, Laura Bailey. My guest today is Sean Stevenson, Creative Director of Moving Memory Dance Theatre Company. Sean has worked in theatre, opera and participatory arts for over 30 years. She has extensive experience in applied theatre with specialist knowledge in movement, inclusivity and disability. Her work with Moving Memory is focused on the creation and promotion of a distinctive movement-based, peer-led, collaborative creative practice which enables people, especially women over the age of 50, to tell their own stories and express their individual identity. I first met Sean about 10 years ago and I've been following the work of Moving Memory ever since. It was a delight to have a chat with Sean about her defiant and DIY route into theatre and how it allowed her to be herself. We talked about the continued presence of ageism in society, particularly towards women, and how movement, dance, theatre, music and telling our own stories is life-changing for older people. Sean is rebellious in the best possible way and has always strived to create spaces for others to feel better about themselves and the world they live in. She is playful, funny and inspiring. Here's her story. Hi Sean, welcome to Creative Health Podcast. Hello Laura, thank you so much for inviting me, it's lovely to be here. It's so good to have you here and we're actually going to have this conversation because we've been trying to have this conversation for what feels like months and then loads of things just keep getting in the way and now here we are. I'm so excited. Yay. So I've invited you here today because I want listeners to hear about your journey and to learn from you and to hear about your passions and your ambitions around the work that you do in the creative sector and in relation to creative health. And I'm always interested to know how people got into their chosen or even accidental careers. So did you know from a young age that the world of theatre and the arts was for you? And were you very creative when you were younger? No, I didn't. I was immersed in the world of Jesus as a Methodist minister's daughter. Right. I was very much brought up to care for other people and everyone who had a big family was, it was their job to grow up and put themselves last and to think of others first. Okay. So I became interested in working with people with learning disabilities. Not sure how, but I did. And after I went to university, I went to work in Camden Social Services with adults with learning disabilities. And from there, I was asked to go and do a master's at Jesus College, Oxford. Whoa, whoop, whoop. Um, (laughs) How appropriate. (laughs) I know, exactly. I'm so slow. It wasn't until I got there I thought, ah, okay, Jesus, Methodism, blah, blah, blah. Um, Which I did for six months And while I was there, a friend of mine rang up and said, do you want to be part of a very camp drag comedy act? And I said, yes, I do. (laughs) So basically, yay, (laughs) yay, I know. 
I ran away to the theatre and I was given time out of my studies so that I would realise the error of my ways. But I never did. My parents were like, I was the first person to go to university in my family. And they were as proud as punch of me. And then I got into Oxford. It was like, woo, you know, we're really cooking with gas here. (laughs) So they were really disappointed. I had done a piece at school called The Wizard of Oz. And I had played the Wicked Witch of the West. And I had never, ever felt so excited and liberated. And then I thought, I love this. But it was like there was no way... I was going to be allowed to go show off. Even though my dad, that's what my dad did every Sunday in the pulpit, you know, he was showing off. And I'd done stuff through my first degree. I'd done other bits. So I knew I loved it, but I don't think I ever realised it could be a career. Okay. But anyway, so I ran away from Oxford, joined the gold washings, and there I got my equity card because one of the first gigs we ever played was a very famous... I think it was called the Tunnel Club, a comedy club run by Malcolm Hardy, sadly now dead. And we were playing the newcomers spot. So myself, my colleagues, Matthew and Bertie and our pianist, Graham. Well, Matthew and I went on and we he, he'd made this, Malcolm had made this big speech. Now, look, this is the newcomers slot. Please remember they're human beings which was like, what? Oh, right. So, yeah, that's a warning. I know. What happened? So Matthew and I went on, naive as whatever, and Matthew started to sing, I started to sing, and what happened was incredible. Well, there were literally tomatoes, glasses, everything being thrown from the audience to us. Oh, wow. And I remember finding someone in the audience and thinking that looks like a nice person I'll really focus on them maybe it'll stop and I focused on this man and he then came and poured a pint of beer over me as well as the pianist we called for Bertie the other performer to come on Bertie had run away but the the good thing about it was I mean it was you know it was um, a baptism of fire um, using the religious references all the time. Yeah. <laughs> Malcolm Hardy felt so bad that he gave us basically enough contracts to get our equity oh, cards. Amazing. Which in those days, I mean, we're talking the 80s, you had to have an equity card to be able to work as a performer. Yeah. Um, and actually a week later in the newcomer's slot at that club, a poor performer had her face slashed <gasps> because... Someone had sent the a glass flying at her face. Yeah, that's not good. I know. But anyway, so that was my first experience and there was no turning back, Laura. I was smitten. So that's amazing. So the first experience didn't put you off then? Not at all. It was basically like my whole case came off. Everything that I'd been brought up with just kind of cracked. Like your shell. Yeah, I started to come out as myself. Yeah, and it was a complete joy. So things from there escalated. You know, it was hard work. I, and I very sensibly, you know, I don't know, I'm not that sensible these days, but I gave myself six-month deadlines. So I said, you know, if I in six months can be getting unpaid work as a performer, I'll carry on. 
if in six months I've got my equity card, you know, I'll carry on. And if I start to get paid, you know, so I just set these deadlines and amazingly met them. I think I'm just a bit kind of um, didn't care too much. And, you know, I got used to the rejections. I had a box of rejections and then things started to happen. I became, you know, involved in lots of fringe stuff. Then I became very interested in physical theatre. I met the Hairy Marys, who were Irish dance were with comedy, a mix of that, which was amazing fun, a wonderful group of women. And I think that set the blueprint for me in terms of actually from a female feminist perspective. And then from there, somehow, and I started to do training with people like Monica Pagno, who was the Cox movement teacher. And I worked with people like Wendy Houston from DVA and Emily Clade. So gradually, you know, when you first start, it's like a massive pool. And I'm a great believer in just doing and thinking something will come, if even if it's a bad experience. And I, I can tell you, I've had some bad experiences and I've produced some crap in my life. But it's always led somewhere. It's always a learning experience, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's kind of, I think to a certain extent, maybe it was easier then. I think I had like 30-day jobs. You know, as a pasta chef, I was a stuffed almond croissants. You know, as a cleaner, God (laughs) knows what I did. But then I got my first job at at MOMI, the Museum of the Moving Image, and that just introduced me to this kind of ensemble. Yeah, so physical theatre became something I really was interested in. And I pursued that. And suddenly I found myself in the world of opera. I was being approached as a choreographer. I was known as the woman who did moving sex and knives. And I, I for the life of me, <laughs> Lord, I don't know how that happened. Hmm. But it was was really exciting to move into that world, although I found it wasn't for me because I balked at the elitism. I just kind of thought, no, that's not for me. But during that period, I had lots of exciting stuff. I started working with Bobby Baker. And I remember a real moment when we were rehearsing on the South Bank for a piece called Take a Peek, which happened at the Royal Festival Hall. And we were rehearsing and we were playing trains, choo-choo trains. And I thought, oh, my God, I am being paid <laughs> to be a choo-choo train. <laughs> and, of course, there was much and the choo-choo trains didn't get into the piece. But it was like, this is just the best. So there's never been a lot of money and things did get hairy Difficult when I had my two children, Agnes and Tegwin, and I was doing a lot of touring internationally with opera and thought, okay, I've got to rein this in. So, you know, it was married with moving out of London. And so I thought, okay, I've got to get a solid day job. So I started teaching. I've been teaching at quite a lot of the conservatoires in London. So then I started doing some visiting lecturing at the University of Kent, as well as continue to work freelance. So that is where Moving Memory was born. We're going to get on to talk about Moving Memory, but you've just told me all sorts of very interesting things, and I just want to pick up on some of these. Let's go back to those feelings that you got from performance. And was it cabaret and sketch shows and things like that that you were doing in the early days? Mm, Yeah. Yeah. 
And so just tell us a bit more about what that did for you. You mentioned about when you're at school, like it being the most exciting feelings you'd ever had. And then you mentioned, you know, when you started doing these shows, kind of almost coming out as yourself. Mm. And I just want to pick up on this because I want other people to understand what drama and theatre and performance can do for you if you're also feeling like you're not able to be yourself. Yeah, I was one of five children and my dear parents were working full time. Dad was a minister, mum was a midwife, she worked nights and they loved us dearly. I need to say that. But they just didn't have much time. So it was a case of mucking along, getting through. And being part of a big family, it's quite difficult to get heard. I remember singing in front of my mother and her going, oh, I didn't realise you had a voice. So I think going into performance, I found out I was funny. You are. Yeah, thank you, Laura. I suppose I was quite amazed that actually people sat there having paid for a ticket and they would listen and they looked at me and I was able to speak and express myself in a way that, yeah, just hadn't been possible in the past. When I played that Wicked Witch of the West, I remember I was so excited afterwards and my dad, you know, love him, tired, you know, just want to get home. And he said, calm down. Oh, okay. And it was like, I wasn't allowed to take that moment. And I suppose, so then thinking, oh, showing off is bad. And actually discovering that showing off is just showing yourself. And, you know, and I wasn't stupid. I, I, I knew what I was good at. I was, knew I was good at being funny. And I knew I was good at being a character actor. So I discovered uh, just a new way of being, which was a joy and it, it was okay to be funny and it was okay sometimes to play um and that had huge dividends for me in terms of my health and my, my well-being yeah did that give you confidence god yeah absolutely absolutely and I suppose actually if I look back I I was always the really naughty one at the back of the class and I used to be really naughty <laughs> but as the minister's daughter you had to really hide it you know, but I was really good at being covert. And everyone loved the fact that I was naughty and mucking about. So it was there, it was there in terms, but you know, it only found a way of coming out in my early 20s. Yeah, but it sounds like, like you say, you knew it was there, and you just had to find a way of getting it out. And it sounds to me like you had this brilliant sort of DIY approach to doing it. Like you said, you just got on with it. And I love that, you know, you just made it happen because you were motivated. You loved it. You were surrounded by other people, probably had the same kind of attitudes as you. And sometimes it is about not asking for permission, but just doing it because you know deep down that it's for you. Yeah, absolutely, that it's a good way of being for some people. And some people it's not, you know, I, I was surrounded by a group of people who all had the same ambition to perform in different ways. But quite a lot of those dropped off along the way because it's hard, it is hard. But I think if you're prepared to just um, not to have a lot of money, not to have a lot of things, but for me, the joy of doing what we do 
what I did then was just so much more valuable than things. And I think you've got to be cheeky because the thing is, you've just got to get through the door. So actually, Laura, my first CV was full of lies. Because <laughs> what I did when I decided to take this change to make the way into the theatre, I calculated, okay, that I'd done one and a half degrees. Was I going to go and spend more time training? And having done those degrees, I know that those kind of, the choice that you have within those are limited. So I decided to make my own training. And that was a mix of doing the job, but also selecting training with people who gradually emerged for me that I thought were interesting. And that took me from physical theatre, from comedy into physical theatre, into performance art, and have then ensured that I've got a, you know, a real rich experience of all different approaches to making. So I'm a great believer about yeah, actually doing the job and learning while on the job. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. It isn't easy, and I think it's difficult for young people to break through because my attitude was if I stick around a long I don't know I still believe this actually it's a very big pool that you start in but if you are dogged enough and determined enough and you have an ounce of talent and you find joy in it keep going and it will happen because eventually people go oh my god she's been around long enough I'm sick of her knocking on my door I'll open the door but it does require resilience huge amount of resilience that's interesting. I want to come back to teaching students at the University of Kent. Mm. But before that, let's talk about when you started to work in sort of educational community settings, doing kind of participatory work. And you mentioned that you specialise in physical theatre and movement inclusivity and disability why was it important to you to start working in those contexts it's always excited me to work with people who don't often have access to creative forms of expressing themselves possibly because of where I came from and I also come from that you know the background of working with people adults with learning disabilities and that passion has stayed with me. So as I was building my career, I continually worked in a professional setting as well as community settings. And that was kickstarted really when I worked for Southwark Social Services doing agency work when I started acting. And I was part of founding Coralie, which was one of the first inclusive dance companies. Coralie's still around. So that again was working with people with learning disabilities. And I find a great passion in creating an environment where other people can discover their creativity and marginalised communities can be spotlighted so that we give a voice to those people. And I see the knock-on for those people in terms of health and well-being, those that I experienced for myself in terms of confidence, a sort of renewed sense of self and purpose and identity, as well as being part of a really exciting, dynamic, creative community that has inspired me throughout my career. And obviously, it continues today. 
And so you teach theatre studies at the University of Kent as well. What's the most important thing you can teach students today? And do you think that's changed over the years? I have just stopped, recently left the university, so I'm no longer teaching there. I wanted to go full-time with Moving Memory and give all of my energy to that. I turned 60 last year and I just really wanted to think, okay, so you know, my, the rest of my career, what do I want to do? And it's returning to my freelance roots, if you like, and connecting myself with projects that I am hugely passionate about. In terms of teaching, I really loved working with students and I really loved going through the same process of re-educating, if you like, people to play again, to engage with their creative imagination, but particularly interested in people working as ensembles and those professional discipline that is necessary for someone to be successful after university in terms of actually getting into the industry. So in terms of what is important, I, you know, I suppose I'm struck by how adults, through the education system, young adults, their curiosity is squashed. And by the time they came to the university, the first year really was about teaching them to shed all that and say, this is an opportunity to look again, to play again. So, yeah, often the first year was about re-educating people just to stop judging themselves, to immerse themselves in a whole new world and to see what are the possibilities here. And it's Lecoq. Lecoq's, the, you know, one of my inspirations in terms of the importance of play. He famously said to a student, who said to him, they won't play with me. He said, well, you play with them then. So, yeah, and then I was very, very keen to impart my professional understanding and experience of the industry to ensure that they actually were equipped with a a knowledge and skills that would enable them to go into the workforce. And I suppose the other thing was about challenging the hierarchy around theatre. So community applied theatre, when I first went to the university, was like, you know, here's proper theatre Here's kind of community theatre. Right. So I remember the first time I worked with St. Nicholas students and my MA students specialising in applied theatre and proposed that we brought a group of profound multiple learning disability students up to university. Some of them were in beds, some of them wheelchair users, and one lecturer saying this is the improper use of our drama space. No. Yes, yes, yes. Shocked and stunned, and I'm delighted now that um, applied or community participatory theatre, as it's now called, is embedded in the curriculum at the university and really valued. And so many more students going on to do that kind of work. I mean, the reason I do this podcast is because I want to encourage people to take part in community-based creative activities Mm. as well as talking about more formalized structured funded professional however you want to describe it creative practices but you can see where this sort of elitism comes from you know when you hear things like what you've just said about the attitude of the university at the time if that's the attitude that the big institutions educational institutions cultural institutions were pushing 
then it's kind of no wonder creativity maybe hasn't hadn't hasn't been adopted as much at a community level as we would like because we know that the benefits and the joy that people can get out of it but Mm. that is interesting and I'm really glad to hear that that's changed yeah I hope it continues to change I don't think it is across the board I mean I've worked with other conservatoires and I have two daughters who I wished for them to go into high finance, but they've gone into performance. (laughs) Of course, I want them to do what what they want to do, but I have been really shocked, actually, at hearing some of the stories about how those more traditional commercial training schools squeeze, still, they still squeeze young people into a particular mould and teach them, I mean, one, it's incredibly expensive for people to go to these places. So in terms of diversity, it's so limited. But two, those people are going, they are still making the same demands in terms of the size of the person, the look of the person, especially women, that they were years ago. So I think some areas of performance, we're getting better in terms of EDI issues, but there is a long way to go. So let's move on to talk about Moving Memory. Moving Memory Theatre Dance Company. Tell everybody what it is all about. What's its purpose? It is about getting people moving and grooving, loosening up, letting go and having a laugh. It's run by older women for older people, but we also do a lot in terms of intergenerational performance. It's about challenging ageism and dismissing the fear around getting older. And actually, we're about celebrating these wonderful people that we work with for their dynamism, for their vibrancy. And we are taking those bodies and those voices, we're skilling them up, empowering them to be the movers and makers. It's non-prescriptive, completely inclusive. And then we shape people's stories and experiences. So it all comes from them. And we put those wherever possible, centre stage. And the impact for people is huge. You know, I talked about, you know, renewed sense of purpose and belonging. Obviously, there's huge impacts in terms of physical, mental health. But there is something more than that in terms of the creativity, them being listened to. And that For some people, it has been life-changing. They've never thought of themselves as someone who is going to be listened to, and someone whose stories are going to be celebrated, and certainly not that they are going to be performing in the middle of, I don't know, whatever it is. Did The Wave recently, so Medway, Trinity Theatre, different venues. Once people are hooked in and that they get it's about them, and then they are nurtured and supported to take the next step, which is performance, that is the cherry on the cake. So we started with a group of women and a commission from the University of Kent working with older people in a residential home who were living in late stages of dementia, and we were challenging that stereotype around kind of reminiscence work 
that happened with older people, which is like, you know, the war continually being brought up. And actually, I did a project at King's Hall in Herne Bay where I worked with a load of tea dancers. And they said to me, oh, you're not going to do another project about older women dancing together, are you? Because we're much more interested in talking about who's having it off with who. And you can't film that person (laughs) because that person's wife will watch it and realise that they, (laughs) yeah. And it was fabulous. And I was like, at the same time, my dad was dying and I experienced what it was for him as an older person to be viewed by the hospice system as opposed to the hospital system. And in one, he was valued with someone with a huge, rich life experience. The other person, he was an old person dying. And how we make judgments about people. And in the case of the tea dancers, I had made judgments and assumptions and I had to quickly go, oh, no, I wasn't thinking about doing that at all. And actually, what the road that they set me down was a much more interesting route. So I really started to challenge my thinking about my perceptions about older people getting older and becoming aware of how ageist we are as a society. And what a huge resource, juicy, juicy resource and interesting group of people we are ignoring and marginalising. So that fired my passion for setting something up. I never realised it would become as successful as it has become. But yes, I suppose that anger We are an ageing population. We have 19% of our population are over 65 currently, and that's going to grow to 13% in the next 10 years. We need to recognise that if we want to keep people out of hospital, we want to keep people out of the GP surgery, just purely at the economic level, we need to recognise that that group of people are not a marginalised problem They are a group of individuals who, if they are given the opportunity to engage in really high quality, exciting, creative projects, then we are extending our understanding of health and giving people the opportunity to lead more fulfilled lives, maybe for longer. It's about quality, I think, quality of life as opposed to quantity. Yeah, absolutely. Because... I mean, you know, we talk about age as a protected characteristic, don't we? But, you know, and that means you don't, you know, you have a right not to be treated less favourably. But like you just described, that doesn't happen. No. It doesn't happen in so many different contexts and settings. No. And so I, I think it's amazing that you're doing this work and I can hear you know, in your voice, that anger and frustration about the way older people are treated. And there needs to be more opportunities like the ones that you're creating for older people. Because like you say, it's about a quality of life and living a long life in good health, isn't it? And so in order to do that, you need to have access to being physically active, to being creative, to being sociable, you know, connecting with people, contact, like physical contact, you know, as well as expressing yourself and all those things. So I think it's really incredible, the work that you're doing. So as part of my job, I attend different conferences. I attended one this week, which was about healthy ageing society. And I think we have still a big fight on our hands 
And I think for me, key to that is extending our definition of health, that what's talked about at the moment is physical activity and nutrition. And actually, for me, what I've experienced and I've seen others experience is that participation in quality creative activities is food for the soul and it celebrates what it is to be you and to be human. And actually that for me, the arts absolutely need to be firmly in that definition of health. And of course, that should be applied to all communities across the generations. I think in terms of ageism, we need we need interventions across the life course so that a young person working alongside with an older person, this is, you know, and we work with young people all the time, and every time they go, oh my God, I'm quite excited to get older now. You know, they've got these perceptions because we feed people these really negative stereotypes, particularly around what it means to be an older woman. Yeah. Yeah, I just call for us to widen our definition of what it means to be healthy. I totally agree with that 100%. And that's why I'm doing this podcast. Good on you, Laura. Well, thank you. And good on you. Let's pat ourselves on the back. Um, (laughs) Why not? Let's go back to moving memory specifically because there's loads of brilliant things in there that you're doing that I want to draw out and for people to know about. I know that you use a process of co-creation and you talked already about celebrating the stories, the individual stories and the collective stories of the people that are involved in it. So tell us about that process and how that works. Okay, so in the first instance, it's about engaging and connecting with a group of people skilling them up with some new physical theatre dance space skills but from the very beginning it's to let them know it's their stories and it's their moves that are important so they will then with us shape those moves they find moves that somehow express what they want to say and we will help them shape that into performance material and then again into performance So it's a gradual process and it's about us establishing a really safe, fun environment where people feel celebrated and valued and gently, gently building confidence so that person wants to tell their story. No one has to and some people choose not to for a long time, but it's in building the relationships and the connections in the company and in the group and ensuring that they know that we will honour those stories. So I, in my career, I have seen some wonderful work in participatory settings, and I've seen some appalling work where an artist will go in and they'll take people's stories, and then they take those and they go create something themselves. And actually, we're saying, no, we are about honouring and celebrating your story. So we will go every step of the way at your pace And we look to enhance those stories where we can through digital projection, through costume and music. So in the end, it all comes together as something that is high quality. I want people to perform where the audience go. I said, you know, I saw stuff in the early days. 
where people go, oh, so nice, isn't that so interesting? Oh, isn't it lovely that they're doing that? Actually, no, we're about the art first. We're about making good art. There are benefits that come later, but that's what we're about. We're making sure that those stories are really gorgeous, interesting, and worthy of someone paying a ticket or coming along for, you know, half an hour or whatever in the cold to come and watch them. I mean, as somebody who has been to your shows, not all of them, but some of them, I can tell listeners that that is what you get. What you get out of your shows is humour. They are funny. They are political. They are interesting. And they challenge you. And you come away going, okay, I maybe have been thinking about this in the wrong way. Or not to go away beating yourself up about it, but just, you know, it does challenge you to rethink how you think about ageing and particularly about ageing women. I think everybody needs to witness this work or other work around the country that is doing the same, you know, has that same mission, I guess, because it matters. Thank you. It does matter. And, you know, and what we're talking about is not a quick process. If it's to have real integrity, you know, so I've been working with our core professional company of seven women now aged up to 91 for 13 years and gradually working from underneath, really, to scale them up until the point where I can start to step back and back and back. So I can truly say it's their work and I'm supporting them through that journey, for want of a better word, to make it the best it can be. And I think over the years, I was a slow progress child at school, Laura. Me too. Oh, the best star. And I think over the years of that practice, listening to our participants, learning from the participants, kind of be able to shortcut that process in terms of co-creation. I think the Grooving Well groups, the Damic Dance It groups that we now work with find that process more accessible and can own it quicker if you like but it's not a quick in and out it's a gradual process where you say actually we are here for the long term so that one day we can go okay you might find someone in the group that really wants to train a person facilitator so that you can really go yeah you are a company now go fly kind of thing But obviously, in terms of funding, that's tough, you know, in terms of long term funding. It's a a hard one to counter. I think recently we we created a new piece called The Devil's Doorbell, which is about ageism and ageist misogyny. It's about the roles that are visited on women through their lives and the process of becoming older and actually shedding those roles to rediscover oneself, if you like. But it's also about all the, the crap that comes with getting older and particularly about being an older woman. And the piece recently, we did, did three shows and the response was really fabulous. I think it's our best show so far. The audience feedback, the word important kept coming up. But what I felt really enhanced it was we worked In each locality, we worked with a venue, we worked with a Grooving Well group, a local community venue, and the core company. And it all came together. So the Grooving Well group, as we call them, created a curtain raiser 
but they also joined the finale at the end. And the production values were really fabulous. And the choreography that the Grooving Well groups, because they are working with our trained facilitators, was fabulous. So they suddenly became aware of the possibilities of continuing to work together and what this might look like in a professional setting. But for those communities that came to support those Grooving Well groups, families, old and young, seeing their people on those stages was really exciting for them. So that, I know, my grandmother isn't just a grandmother with a stick. She, God, she's got slinky hips. She can groove, she can move, and she can <sighs> smile and connect with those audiences. So it's a, they go, oh, my God, she's more than just my nana. Yeah, so important. You mentioned a few times these Grooving Well groups. Mm. So these are sort of ongoing workshops in communities. How do they work and how can people get involved in them? Okay, so when we realised that people wanted to get involved, we developed our participatory programme, which is called Moving Well. So we were running Moving Well groups in different community settings in across Kent. But after... COVID, we created a project called Damn It, Dance It and renewed our commitment to reach so-called hard-to-reach audiences. Awful, awful uh, kind of label. It's actually not true that people are hard to reach. We just need to go to those people. And we're committed to working in under-resourced communities, if you like. So areas of economic, social deprivation, So Damn It, Dance It was the extreme of that in that we went to shopping centres. A couple of our creative facilitators would rock up with sandbox and movement kit and invite anyone to get moving and grooving. And it was amazing. I mean, the need after COVID and still because of the lack of resources and services and support services for people, the need was huge. People wanted just to have a cup of tea, a chat, join for five minutes, bring their whole family in for a whole session, stay for the whole six weeks. And it was wonderful. So we took those then to public libraries. So the idea is that Damn It Dance, it hooks people in. And if people really want to get more involved, they can then take their passion and interest to what we call a grooving well group. And these grooving well groups are happening all over Kent, but particularly we are embedding them in Medway, Gravesend, Chatham, looking to do that in Margate. We've also been doing some in Tunbridge Wells, in Whitstable. We're starting work in Dover and Folkestone, where we're based. And we've also got work starting again in in Maidstone. So Grooving Well groups will continue, hopefully forever and ever, amen. (sighs) But they will be restarting in the new year. Anyone who's interested, they just go onto our events news pages on the website. Just send us an email and we will contact them to keep them up to date with where things are happening. Brilliant. They sound amazing. So, yeah, the new year, it will be definitely Dover, Gravesend, Maidstone. Those are the three that will kickstart next year. Okay. And I was going to ask you this question about um, what advice you would give to women or men or non-binary people over the age of 50 who feel like they don't exist anymore. And clearly they can come to your grooving well groups, but 
But just in general, what would you say to try and encourage people to get involved, I guess, in the arts? I think as individuals, it's an awareness that actually we have taken on many of the assumptions that are made about us after 55. Older women, you know, we're postmenopausal, most of us. Children, if we had them, have left. And often people feel like things are closing down. And I think we have to look at ourselves and think, okay, so am I am I being ageist towards myself in taking those things on? And actually, am I healthy still? Am I interested and am I passionate? And do I have things I want to say to do? And recognise that you have the right, absolute right, to continue to live your life to the full. And actually, with older age and the changes in responsibilities, there is possibility there. And actually, don't be dogged by this continual... People think, yeah, I've said already, people see age as a problem. No, age is a possibility. I would find out what it is you'd like to do, what really gets you going, you think might get you going. Find other people that are doing it. Give it a go. And it may not be that thing that gets you, but the thing you do will lead somewhere else. Yeah. Until you find your tribe, if you like. And once you've got that tribe, have a laugh. Let yourself go and actually, yeah, remember the possibilities. Yeah, that's a really lovely answer. Thank you. I love that. Age is a possibility. I've heard other people say ageing is a privilege as well. I guess it's about giving yourself permission to just not care as much about what other people think. And like you said, to just shed some crap that you're carrying around and enjoy try and enjoy your life and have fun absolutely it's easier said than done isn't it because lots of people do have you know are not aging healthily and and often things are a struggle but I've talked to lots of other people in other contexts about this idea of not worrying so much about whether you're good at something or not and just having a go exactly and it's the same isn't it yeah I was at a Dover Grooving Well group with people who haven't done this before, one of our mantras is there is no right or wrong. It's just about letting go and having a laugh and celebrating what it means to be human, the good stuff. Things are really difficult for people at the moment. And no, it's it's what I'm talking about. You know, it's, it's difficult to think like that if you're in a bad place where it's just where our commitment should be in terms of ensuring that the arts are well-resourced, properly resourced, we look after our facilitators and we give lots of opportunities for working with people in marginalised, under-resourced communities so that those opportunities are there at people's doorsteps. They're not up on some hill in the sky and that's only for people with money. So there just has to be a kind of real shift in terms of where our resources are going to in terms of ensuring a healthy population and ensuring that everyone has the right to engage in quality arts, cultural, creative activities. Because it's stupid not to. The knock-on for society, for individuals, is it's there. We have all this research. It's huge. Yeah. And, you know, it just needs a shift in policy. Yeah. If we look at the 2017 creative um, all-parliamentary report for the arts and health and well-being, it's there. 
And actually, there are people in power who have said, yes, we need this. So listen to Chris Whitty, the chief medical officer during COVID and now continuing a conference this week. And the arts are kind of there, but we as arts organisation, however difficult it feels, we need to keep making that argument and I think collecting the research and the evidence. So the body of, of evidence is just too hard to ignore. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I think those people in power probably participate in some kind of creativity themselves. They're just not making that connection between doing it and how it makes them feel and then translating that into policy. I know it's not as straightforward as that. but no, you know, it's not. Not everybody knows it, but lots of people do understand the role that creativity could play. We've just got to stop fearing... I don't know, the public perception of putting more money into the arts or something like that, you know, and just really go for it. Yeah, and thankfully there are some fabulous, in terms of age and ageing, there are some fabulous organisations that are out there. Bering Foundation was hugely influential in terms of bringing the arts and healthy ageing agenda to the forefront and has left us with the legacy of the Creative Arts Ageing Development Agency, uh, CADA, but we also have the Aging Better National Organisation. So they're producing some amazing work. I think we, as arts organisations, need to break down the silos, but also be connecting as much as possible together and with those organisations so that we're not ignored. Absolutely. Oh, Sean, this has been such a lovely conversation. I would really like to be able to get to see your new show. Are you still touring The Devil's Doorbell? Devil's Doorbell is resting at the moment, but we are really hopeful that we will be able to raise touring um, money and take it further. Yeah. Cracking the Crinoline, which was one of our first street pieces, will be back on the streets thanks to applause touring in the spring and summer. So people can get a short, sharp shot from our queen bees and marigolds, lots of marigolds. But yeah, hopefully the Devils will tour next year, later next year. All right. Well, we'll put lots of links in the show notes, all of these things. And I just want to say thank you so much for coming on Creative Health Podcast and sharing your story and your ideas and your passion and your politics. Um, It's been great. Thank you, Laura. It's been lovely to talk with you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, please rate, review and subscribe. Follow the show on Instagram at creativehealthpod and via the website creative-health.co.uk. This episode was edited by Penny Bell. Creative Health Podcast has been supported through Kent County Council's Arts Investment Fund.